He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Welcome here. My name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. But my name really doesn't matter that much. There is one name that we're celebrating this morning. Here, I haven't even gone in the sermon. I'm already crying. <laughs> Welcome here. What a great day. Resurrection Sunday, Easter. It's not about baskets or bunnies. It's about Jesus. And in case you didn't notice, we are celebrating the resurrection. And that's what we Christians do. Over this crazy time of COVID, some funny stuff has happened. I see things in the news and, you know, there's shutdowns and this and that. And, and, and people are like, oh no, what are we going to do? It's Easter. Like, what do we always do on Easter? We celebrate the resurrection. Amen. It doesn't matter if we're at home. It doesn't matter if we're in a field. It doesn't matter if we're in our own house or in our basement or if there's nuclear war and all the sky comes crashing down. It doesn't matter. If Jesus Christ is really risen from the dead, then what else is there? Every single Sunday, The first day of the week, according to John, this is what Christians have done forever. This is the core. This is the hinge. This is the pivot point of our entire belief system. If this doesn't happen, there's no such thing as Christianity or Christ. But because of this, but because of this, we know that we win. Today we're going to look at the resurrection in John chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there and stick your finger there and hold on for just a second. I want to set it up a little bit before we get into it, just so we feel it, so we sense it, so we know what's going on, because as readers in today's world, it's kind of black and white and it's just on a piece of paper, but we may not grasp the emotion right away that these people are going through. You know, there's there's characters in this story, and they're not puppets. They're real, they're real people. They're, they're just like us with emotions and jobs and families. And they're encountering this thing that is so much bigger than themselves that there is no amount of emotional preparation that would be sufficient to fully process all that they're about to experience. The character that we look at today is Mary Magdalene, which is really interesting, and I'll get to that here in a second, but she's this woman who is a follower of Jesus, and we see her at the start of this um, pericope or story or or section of Scripture. We see her at the beginning in verse 1, and we see her at the end. And that's called an inclusio. And the reason he starts and stops with the same person is because he wants you to journey through her experience. And so I'm going to do my best to sort of describe that this morning. I obviously won't do it perfect, but imagine yourself in this scene. And what we're going to do is we're going to take three steps that Mary goes through that realistically all of us go through. And those three steps are these. Here's a slide. The first is orientation. The second 
is disorientation. And the third is new orientation. Orientation, disorientation, new orientation. This is the process that Mary is going through. And realistically, it's a process that a lot of us go through as well. And just briefly, I'll get into it here more more in just a second. But just briefly, you know, the orientation is what you're used to. It's the normal, you know. It's like, okay, this is how we do life. It may not be easy, but this is what we figured out. This is what works for us. This is how we get through. And then something dramatic happens. There's that dramatic transformational moment where all of a sudden everything you knew is turned upside down, flipped on its head, and things just don't work or don't make sense anymore. That's a disorientation. And these disorientations, they can be small or they can be large. It can be like I woke up in the middle of the night and I had a fever and the next morning I was expecting to go to work, but I couldn't because I'm sick relatively small. They could be large. I had a heart attack. There's cancer. There's a death. There's a job loss. They could be huge. But whatever it is, the process is still the same. You start with this sort of spot that you're in, this normal, and then something happens. COVID, whatever. All of a sudden you're like, whoa, (laughs) now things are different. And then there's an adjustment process and you land in the new normal or the new orientation. So let's follow Mary as she goes through that Let me start by describing her orientation, the season of her life before John 20, before the crucifixion. And if you can imagine, here's a woman originally. By the way, have any of you been watching the series The Chosen? Okay, that's a good one, isn't it? Now, there's a little bit of uh, masala or artistic license in there. But if you've seen this, you've seen a beautiful artistic uh, uh, expression of who mary might have been or what she might have looked like the gospels don't show us a whole lot all they do in luke chapter 8 is tell us it's just like a one-liner they're describing her and they say oh yeah by the way she's the woman out of whom jesus cast seven demons so prior to her encounter with christ this mary of the town of magdalene or mary magdalene she um, was possessed by seven demons, and we don't know what got her there or anything like that. We just know that her life must have been absolutely miserable before she met Jesus. And then she met Jesus, and everything changed, and she knew it, and she's committed to following him from the first until the last. So all the disciples and everybody else runs away. There she is at the foot of the cross. She's the first one to the tomb after the Sabbath. I mean, she is there. So She's all in. This is Mary Magdalene. And when she's experiencing Jesus and his normal life and ministry, she follows him through this whole process. And she watches this ark build. And it starts out with just some humble carpenter from Nazareth. But all of a sudden, he starts doing some weird stuff like turning water into wine, and walking on water, healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead. What? Who is this guy? The lame walk, the blind see. What does that tell you? Could this be the Messiah? All this is going through her mind, and she already loves him because of what he did for her, but she's seeing so much more. And all of a sudden, she's thinking, man, I think we found him. 
Here comes the Messiah. Maybe he will be the anointed one like David, but even better, and he will deliver us from Rome, and he'll set up God's kingdom, and everything will be made well, and we will live in the land as God originally intended for our father Abraham. Here he is. And then it makes sense. It's starting to move in that direction, and the momentum is building. And at the same time the momentum is building, the opposition is building as well. And he's gathering a following. He's got his close inner core and his close circle, his tight 12. And then there's these hundreds of other disciples and followers that are pursuing him as well. And he's brought into the city. Now, of course, because he's so popular, the people that are in power, they don't really like that. It's distracting from them. They're upset. They're jealous. They're angry. They hate him. And they want to kill him, but they don't have any excuse as of yet. And he's brought into the city. And the people are crying out, Anah Yahweh, Hoshiana, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's a psalm which means save us God, save us Yahweh. And they're recognizing this could be the Messiah sent to save. Here he comes and so they line the road with palm branches and he rides in signaling his victory. And everyone thinks that this is it. But then, Only a few days later, all of a sudden, he's dead. What just happened? None of it makes sense. The disciples are afraid. They're in hiding. And and everyone's confused and bewildered. Everything was building up so perfectly, and it all made sense. And now it just came crashing down. What happened? This is where we find ourselves in John chapter 20. In this place of disorientation. You see, she had her orientation. Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to save us. And all of a sudden, he's dead. And nothing makes sense. Now we come to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 beginning in verse 1, says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and Mary said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and John, stooping to look in, saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Peter saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as of yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So, orientation... Everything's going well. Disorientation, now he's dead. And the new orientation that Mary is moving to in this passage. Before we get to all the uh, celebration, let me just point out a few of the important and significant details that may be of interest to you. If you're a person who likes to look a little bit deeper, let me show you a few things real quick. Verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, that's... Sunday, that's today. First day of the week is today. For them in their calendar, that's the way it works. Now, we as Christians, we always worship on Sunday. That's because Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And because of our tradition growing out of the Old Testament, some of us inadvertently call Sunday Sabbath. But it's not the Sabbath. Yesterday was the Sabbath. So if you wanted to celebrate the Sabbath, you missed it. You're late. (laughs) Today is Sunday, and today is even better than the Sabbath. The Sabbath symbolizes God's eternal rest. It's the seventh day. It symbolizes new creation and new hope and new life. But the resurrection happened today on the first day of the week. And that's why even even in Bible times, like the Reve- in the book of Revelation, John talks about the church meeting together on the Lord's day. This tradition of meeting together on Sunday because the resurrection happened on Sunday has been going since the very beginning. So this is our day. This is not an old thing. This is a new thing. This is not the Sabbath. This is the Sunday. This is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And we already talked about Mary Magdalene a little bit. And then there's this thing about the stone being rolled away. Now, kiddos, look up at me for a minute. If you were stuck somewhere behind a stone... I think in order for you to get out, you're pretty creative. You might be able to think of something. You always surprise our parents, no doubt. But I think you would probably need someone's help to move the stone so that you could get out. Am I right? Okay. So if that's the case, why do you think that angels 
were there. What did they do? Georgia, what did they do? They rolled the stone away. I think you're exactly right. I think the angels are probably the ones who rolled away. But you know the interesting thing about this? The angels didn't roll the stone away so that Jesus could get out. Instead, they rolled the stone away so that we could look in. See, Jesus was already out. He rose from the grave. He's done with that stuff. He doesn't need the stone moved. In fact, it shows later in the New Testament he can move through material. Yet, we need the witness of the empty grave to verify and confirm our faith. And so the stone is rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, but so that the disciples can stoop down and look in. As you read that text, every time it's stooped down, looked in, they run. And again, we're looking through the eyes of Mary Magdalene, but everyone likes looking at Peter. And of course, Peter's this fast-paced, impetuous, you know, crazy sort of dude that many of us can identify with. And he burst out towards the tomb as fast as he can. He doesn't make it there as quick as John. John gets there first, but John understands ceremonial defilement. And he wants to take things cautiously and think a little bit before the first step. So he's like, whoa, hold on here. Catch my breath. What am I going to see? Peter? No. Boom. Into the tomb we go. (laughs) Where is he? (laughs) There's Peter. And he burst into the tomb and Jesus is not there. Peter couldn't do that if the stone was there. He had to roll it away, but he couldn't. They need some powerful angels to do that. So the tomb is open. The stone is rolled away. Not so Jesus can get out, but so that we can get in. The tomb is open. They arrive, they look in, and they discover. Listen, Easter is about discovery. Easter is about discovery. Easter is about our discovery of Jesus' victory. Our discovery of Jesus' victory. That's what Easter is about. Again, it's not about discovering Easter eggs. It's not about discovering an Easter bunny. It's about discovering an Easter Jesus who rose from the grave, defeated sin, and lives forevermore. Easter is about discovery. Discovery and victory. We discover Jesus wins. We discover Jesus wins. Easter is about discovery. And so they look in and, oh my, he's not there. Now here's another important one for you kiddos. Listen up. Ready? This is really important, especially for the young people in the room. I'm so glad you're here today. It says that the linen cloths were lying there and the faith cloth was folded up in a place by itself. All right, kiddos, here's another chance. Does anybody know what this means? Georgia, you've got to have a guess. Any ideas? I think you know you just don't want to admit it. You know what this means? Jesus makes his bed. Oh, it's true, isn't it? I mean, if grave robbers would have come, they would have stripped off the linen and looked for jewelry or whatever they can find that's value. They're going to ransack the place and make a mess. They don't care. But here are the linen cloths neatly pressed and the face cloth folded up and set there. It's almost like he's OCD or something, you know, but he wants to make the point clear, this was not a grave robber. Not at all. 
This is a resurrection. Some people speculate, we don't know, but some people speculate he like zapped through the claws. I don't know. He could have unwrapped himself. It doesn't really matter. But either way, the Bible is clear. The linen claws, the grave clothes, were neatly packed up just so and set to the side. John sees this, and John is referred to here as the disciple whom Jesus loved because John's writing the book. He doesn't necessarily want to brag, I beat Peter to the tomb. Ha ha, I was first. <laughs> you know, he, he, and so he kind of, he's careful about his name. He doesn't really refer to himself like, I'm John. He's like, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus did this too. He referred to himself a lot as the son of man. He didn't always take the biggest title. He just said, this is who I am. John said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what's cool about this, this is the only place um, prior to the resurrection appearances that we get some sort of hint of faith. And it says this. It says, John saw in verse 8, and he believed. John saw, and he believed. The point of John's gospel, John 3.16, God so loved the world, all this stuff is so that we believe. This is the pinnacle of faith when you believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins and rose from the grave. John sees this and believes. But Mary, I mean, she's like a normal person, right? She's not there yet. She's overcome with emotion and grief. And so she's just standing there, and the words in the original Greek give the impression that she's like still shaking. She's shook, and she's just crying. She's weeping. She's shaking. She's still stuck there at the tomb. Why? Well, because she thinks, I mean, obviously everything is destroyed. Jesus is obliterated. He's been crucified. He's been whipped. He's been beaten. He's been stripped, mocked. His, any honor he had was gone. He's been completely shamed and killed. And now they're double shaming him. Not only did they kill him, but even though Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus tried to give him a proper burial, he didn't get one. Because evidently, some grave robbers came, stole his body, and are perhaps going to drag it through the streets and shame and mock him even more. This is what you see going on even in the Middle East today. If they capture some you know, American or something like that, and they want to mock them, they, they violate the dead body. That's what she assumes is going to happen here, that Jesus' grave has been violated and that it's been, in a sense, raped and he's being punished over and over again. So she's weeping and weeping and weeping. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is standing there. Of course, she doesn't recognize him because she's overcome with grief and he's no longer dripping with blood, but he's glorious. And he asks her, woman, why are you weeping? And... She comes up with the only theory she could come up with, thinking he's a gardener and maybe carried away the body, even though that wouldn't make sense at all. And then she comes to the spot where Jesus calls her name. And let me tell you, this is when things change. This is when things change. When Jesus calls your name. Have you heard Jesus call your name? Maybe he's calling your name this very morning. 
Maybe he's been calling it for a long time and you just haven't listened. But here is when the dramatic moment happens. When Jesus calls you by name. Mary. Mary. She recognizes him and she begins to move from her new orientation and disorient her orientation, disorientation to the new orientation. She moves from remorse to rejoice. But it's not instantly all just right. I mean, you can imagine this is like fear mingled with joy. It's one of those strange feelings like, I'm so excited about this, and yet I'm scared to death. I have no idea what's gonna happen here. I'm glad but it doesn't seem good. It's like maybe if you're a, a, on a transplant list and you get the news that you're, someone is going to donate one of their organs to you and you're like, yay, I'm going to be healthy. Well, whoa, surgery. You know, what's going on here? And she's struggling through this and she's holding on to Jesus. So she's clinging to him like, I'm not going to let you go again. <laughs> not a chance, mister. Jesus is like, hang on, Mary, 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 Mary. <laughs> hang on, Mary, Mary. Your job's not done. It's just begun. Go and tell. Now that you know, go and tell. Go and tell my, who? My disciples? My minions? My peons? Go and tell who? Verse 17. Who does it say? My brothers. Jesus just called us brothers? How in the world did that happen? There's only one way. Through death, Burial and resurrection. There's no death, burial, and resurrection. There's no brotherhood. But because of the death, burial, and resurrection, because of the belief, because of the entrance of the Holy Spirit into our lives, then we can call him brother. And when you become a brother of Christ, that means you become a son of God, and you can call him brother. Father. That's why Jesus says to my Father and to your Father. Now, one quick note here we're not Mormons. Uh, we're not um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. We believe differently than they do about the person of Christ and about our own brotherhood with Christ. They think we really are brothers, like all sons of the same Father. Here what scripture is saying is that Jesus is the only begotten son of the living God in a unique way that nobody else on the face of the planet is. By right. By right. We become sons and daughters of God by adoption and grace. He is the son of God by right. We are sons of by adoption and grace. It's a different deal. But here's the story. Jesus is risen from the dead 
And the first and very first person he appears to is a woman. I thought the Bible was sexist. Just a product of its culture, that patriarchal society that wants to stomp on women and keep them down. The very first person that Jesus spoke to after he rose from the grave was a woman. The very first person who got to see Jesus raised from the grave was a woman. The person who was commissioned with the single most important news in the entire world ever was a woman. Don't sit here and tell me that the Bible is culturally conditioned. No, 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 no. There's nothing cultural about this at all. In fact, if you're in this culture, a woman couldn't even testify in court and she couldn't go to church and she couldn't go to school. But the one who Jesus chose to testify about him first was a woman. It's got nothing to do with the culture and everything to do with the Christ. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And all of a sudden they move from remorse to rejoice. And this is why Psalm 96 says, says this, here's a slide, Psalm 96, says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Marvin Tate says that a new song is a song which breaks through the restraints of the present circumstances and voices expectation and the confidence in future works of God. It is the proof that Jesus was not a condemned criminal but the only begotten Son of the living God vindicated by the Father. Here is a new song, the good news that the conquering hero was in fact the Messiah. He did exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do. You see, if Rome was the biggest enemy, he would have conquered Rome. But Rome was not the biggest enemy. The biggest enemy that we have is sin. That is what makes Rome bad or any other government bad or anything else evil. It's sin. And you can't get it out with a new system or a new political party or more education or health care or technology or anything else. That won't conquer the human condition. Only. Only a crucified and risen Savior can do that. so Jesus is in fact the Messiah that they were looking for. It's a lot different than what they expected. He entered the hostile territory, just like a Messiah would. He confronted the enemy, not Rome, but Satan. He beat him to death, took back what was stolen, us, and returned in triumph and distributed gifts to all of his followers, the Holy Spirit. And we move with Mary from disorientation and fear to belief. That is why in Colossians, Paul can say, truly through the cross of Christ, God 
is going to reconcile to himself all things. The resurrection means submission and recovery and victory over all that was broken and lost. Christ regained it in the cross. Easter is about discovery and victory. Our discovery, we bend over, we look in the tomb like, oh, where's Jesus? Oh yeah, this is what he said he would do like three different times. And we realize and we believe. Then we understand, here's the victory we've all been hoping for. Does it make life easy? Does it make life perfect? Get everything I want? Absolutely not. We're going to suffer, and then we're going to die. But, just like Jesus, who suffered and died, we too will be raised to new life. And when we do, we won't be in these miserable old broken bodies, dealing with the same old sin we always had our whole life. But we'll have a glorified body just like his. And that is the new hope. That is the new life. That's the victory that Easter brings. Father, we thank you and praise you for your son Jesus, our perfect Savior, beautiful Lamb of God, Messiah on the cross. Lord, we worship him today. I talked and tried to make him look good. Lord, I can't make him look good. There's no way to look, make him look any better than what he is. But we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see you, that we would hear you, we would feel you, and we would follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.